Over 100 years ago, a New York City theater created the first movie trailer, and it didn't take long for Hollywood to catch on to the fact that this was a good way to promote what's coming next. By the way, do you know how they got the name movie trailer? It's because originally they came after the movie. They trailed the, the, the featured film until Hollywood realized that people were leaving after the featured film and weren't staying to watch the trailer, and so they moved them to the beginning. But the name stuck, and now we're stuck in watching them before the main movie when we go to the theater to see it. A movie trailer is designed to grab your attention. It doesn't tell you the whole storyline. It doesn't give you the end of the story, but it does grab your attention. It fills you with anticipation. It leaves you wanting more. You don't get every detail that you want in a trailer, but you do get enough to know that, boy, I just don't want to miss this upcoming movie. If you think that the movie trailer was original with Hollywood, you're mistaken. God was doing this through the Feast of the Old Testament 3,500 years ago. Each feast is trailer-like. It grabs your attention, fills you with anticipation, leaves you wanting more. Doesn't give you all the details that you want, but it does point us toward some expectation of when the Savior would finally burst upon the scene of human history. And of all of them that we've looked at, I think the two we're going to look at today, well, are some of the most powerful in what they portray. The Feast of first fruits and the Feast of Trumpets. Leviticus chapter 23 verse 9 introduces us to the first of them. Then the Lord said to Moses, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. When you enter the land that I am giving you and you harvest its first crops... Bring the priest a bundle of grain from the first cuttings of your grain harvest. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest will lift up before the Lord so it may be accepted on your behalf. Do not eat any bread or roasted grain or fresh kernels on that day until you bring this offering to your God. This is a permanent law for you and it must be observed from generation to generation wherever you live. Now, this is a spring harvest, folks. This is the barley harvest. We, we don't think much about barley today, but it is still a major cash crop. It's number four. It's behind wheat, gr uh, corn, and rice, but it's a major crop. And it was a major crop for the children of Israel. And it was harvested during this March-April season of the year where we are even today. And here's how, how it went. When the harvest field was just about ready for harvest. You would look for the first heads of grain that were ripe, and you would cut those, and you would bundle them together. You would make a sheaf of them, and you would bring it to the priests in Jerusalem, and the priest would wave it before the Lord as the first of the harvest, the first fruits of the harvest, and, and that was God's way of approving of your gift, and the bundle was kept there at the temple. You didn't get it back. It was the first fruits. It was your gift to the Lord. And you brought that along with other sacrifices. But now here was the twist. You could not use, grind, roast, bake, or eat any of the grain from your barley field until after you had brought the first cuttings to the Lord. You see, God was teaching an important principle to his people and teaching us an important principle that first things belong to him. 
The first always belongs to God. The first of the crops, the firstborn of the flocks and the herds, even the firstborn male in Jewish families belonged to God. Did you know that? That if you had a firstborn male, that that male actually belonged to the Lord. And so what you had to do was you had to go to the temple 40 days after the birth of your son and you offered a lamb. And if you were too poor and you couldn't afford a lamb, you brought two turtle doves and that was your gift to God to buy back or redeem your firstborn son. So 40 days after the birth of Jesus, that's why we find Mary and Joseph going to the temple offering two turtle doves because of their poverty to buy back Jesus, their son. This is an important lesson for us. First things always belong to the Lord. Our time, the first of our time, the first of our energy, the first of our resources is for the Lord. It should be a top priority, not a leftover gift. When we face the difficult moments of our lives, folks, we should turn to him first for wisdom, not as a last resort after we've exhausted every other possibility. And when it comes to our allegiance, our loyalty, he should take first place. So the Feast of First Fruits is, first of all, a reminder that the Lord deserves to be the preeminent part of our life. But even more than that, this feast was a preview of the end of God's story. You see, this day may at, at a glance seem to be a little bit, well, anticlimactic when you compare it to Passover or when you compare it to the atonement. But it is, well, it is perhaps one of the most glorious things that it predicts. This day came after the Sabbath of the Passover. So you had Passover, then you had the Sabbath day after the Passover, and then you had the Feast of First Fruits, which means it always occurred on a Sunday morning, okay? And, and so here's, here's the plan. If Jesus died, folks, on Passover Friday, the next day, Saturday, was the Sabbath, the first of unleavened bread, then that Sunday was the Feast of First Fruits. But we don't read about the Feast of First Fruits in the, at the end of the Gospels because we're so excited about the other event that took place on the Sunday after that Passover when Jesus died, and we're celebrating the resurrection. It gets completely missed in the shuffle, but that, folks, is exactly what this feast was all about. It was pointing to the resurrection. And so on that day, we have this incredible, glorious picture. That's what Paul is trying to describe when he writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep, that's a euphemism for death, those who have died in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Ah, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits of those who have died. Wow, what a picture. This feast points to the greatest of all historic moments in time. And folks, Paul was right. Everything hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the do or die moment for Christianity. If the resurrection didn't happen, we're wasting our time here. Uh, we shouldn't be here. We ought to just sell the property, divide up the money among us, and go home and live out the rest of our days until we die. Because if he doesn't 
come back from the grave, we have no hope. But, but if Jesus did rise from the grave, if he is alive today, that changes everything. It once and for all settles who is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. It once and for all settles what Jesus meant when he said to Thomas and the rest of the disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, he is the only one who is a risen Savior. And if he can conquer death, he can conquer anything. I like what Peter Larson wrote. He said, the life of Jesus is bracketed by two impossibilities, a virgin's womb and an empty tomb. Jesus entered our world through a door marked no entrance, and he left through a door marked no exit. Therein lies our hope. And I tell you, folks, throughout history, there have been a lot of people who have tried to discredit the resurrection, who've set out to prove it wrong. Albert H. Ross was an advertising agent in Great Britain, set about to write a scholarly definitive paper to once and for all lay to rest this resurrection stuff. And he was going to call it Jesus the Last Phase. But the longer he searched, the longer he studied, the more convinced he became that the resurrection was truth, not myth. And so in 1930, under the pen name of Frank Morrison, he wrote a classic book that for the last 85 plus years has still been changing people's lives. The book is entitled, Who Moved the Stone? But this is not an uncommon story. Archaeologist Sir William Ramsey spent 15 years digging in the lands of the Bible to prove the New Testament a hoax, but instead became a Christian. Civil War hero General Lew Wallace from Crawfordsville, Indiana, set out to settle his skepticism once and for all and ended up writing this classic Christian novel of conversion to Christ called Ben-Hur. Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ, Josh McDowell's The Evidence That Demands a Verdict all started out the same way. Two agnostics trying to prove that the resurrection is a hoax. Magician Andre Cole, who's crafted some of the most magnificent magical tricks for, for the likes of David Copperfield. As a matter of fact, he was the one that got this whole idea of the disappearing of the Statue of Liberty that David Copperfield did. He was tasked with the idea of can you prove that the miracles of the Bible are just mere tricks? And so Andre Cole began to uh, um, uh, look and study and... Uh, ended up becoming a Christian as a result, realizing that the miracles of the Bible were indeed miracles of the Bible. And so now he uses his magic all around the world. As a matter of fact, as a magician, he's been in more countries than any other magician in history, and he takes with him the gospel using his show to show Jesus Christ. You see, if you really dig deep enough, if you're really sincere about your study, you can't come to any other conclusion than that the resurrection is true. And it says that he is the first fruits of those who sleep. Did you catch, catch that? So does that suggest that there is more about the resurrection than just the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Certainly. And that's the second insight of this incredible feast. Just as the single sheaf of barley signaled the rest of the harvest to come, so the resurrection of Jesus Christ signals the rest of the resurrections to come. You mean... You mean, when I die, my body is going to eventually be raised again? You got it. 
Absolutely. That core belief is the hope of the Christian faith. What else do you think when it means, what, what Paul means when he says that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have died? In other words, as it happened to him, so someday it will happen to us. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. This body? Really, Lord? I got to live in this thing for, for all eternity? I was, I was hoping for something, well, newer. Fresher, brighter, something a bit taller, something with a little bit more hair, something that tapers in and not tapers out. Lord, I, I want something better, uh, more class, a little bit of style. Well, don't panic. Just remember that everything in heaven is greater than anything here. I don't know what we're going to be like when we get home. I just know that it'll be perfect. Somebody said they think we'll all be 33 because that was how old Jesus was when he was resurrected. I can live with that. <laughs> I don't know that's what we'll be, but I can live with that. You, you see, I just know that it's going to be greater than anything we can possibly imagine. And, and you see, there's something, there's something incredible that happens in the soil when something is planted, even a body. A farmer doesn't plant in fear. A farmer plants in hope. And the celebration isn't at the planting. The celebration is at the harvest. And every year, farmers do the same thing over and over again, anticipating the harvest. And it isn't until that seed breaks down, or, or could we use the word, until that seed dies in the soil, that new life comes forth. And you think, yeah, but seeds don't last very long. Oh, yes, they do. Do you know houses that have <clears throat> like the, the dirt underneath them that have been torn down? Houses that are 100 years old that have been torn down. If you take the dirt underneath the house where it hasn't been any light or water since and you water and expose that dirt to light, weeds and grass will grow. A 2,000-year-old Judean date palm seed was discovered in the ancient ruins of Herod's palace. It was planted and it grew. Now that ought to give us some encouragement. Seeds can last and wait a long time before new life comes forth. When our body is planted in the ground, someday it will give way to brand new life. And have you ever thought about this? Which way do you plant a seed to make sure it grows right? Anybody know? Have you looked for the little up arrow on the side of the seed to, to make sure you get it in the ground just right? It's not there. Because it doesn't matter how you put the seed in the ground. God's built into the seed the knowledge to know. Science calls it positive and negative geotropism. The roots of the seed are drawn toward the core of the earth, the gravity. But the stem is drawn toward the light. It gives new meaning to what the Bible says that we are to be deeply rooted in him. And we are to live and walk in the light as he is in the light. You see, it doesn't matter how the seed is planted, where the seed is planted, what condition the seed is when it is planted, it will produce new life. Even in our farming, we see the picture of what happened on this day 2,000 years ago. And that brings us to the last feast we're going to explore because the two are integrally connected. It's the Feast of Trumpets. <clears throat> Leviticus chapter 23 verse 24 says this. On the first day of the appointed month in early autumn, you are to observe a day of complete rest. 
It will be an official day for Holy Assembly, a day com- commemorated with a loud blasts of the trumpet. You must do no ordinary work on that day. Instead, you are to present special gifts to the Lord. Now, this feast, this feast was known as a wake-up call, a spiritual reveille, if you please. And there's just one basic command associated with this. Listen for the trumpet. And when you hear the trumpet, rest. Make it a day where you do no work. It is introducing us to a day of rest. So what's the trumpet? Well, I think it's probably the shofar. The shofar was a ram's horn, and it was an important instrument in Hebrew history. Trumpets were used to warn of danger. They were used for a call to action. They were used as a signal in military maneuvers, and the horn was used as a call for worship. Now, now the Israelites had silver trumpets as well, but but this shofar, the the ram's horn, was, was significant to them. And when God moved his people into the promised land after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. When they finally made it to the promised land, we see this business of the first fruits and the, and the feast of the trumpets all coming together. There, here is this grand picture. The very first city of the promised land that was going to fall to the Israelites was the city of Jericho. And God says, that's the first city. That's my city. All the plunder of that city will be mine. This is my battle, says the Lord. Once again, first fruits. Got it? The first belongs to the Lord. And so God says, I'm going to draw up the military plan for this one because no military leader in his right mind would have drawn up this plan. Do you know what the plan was? (laughs) The army of Israel was to march around the city of Jericho once every day for six days. And they were being led by seven priests with seven trumpets. But on the seventh day, they were to march around the city of Jericho seven times And at the end of the seventh time, the trumpets would blow, the army shouted, and the walls came crumbling down. Now, no no person can brag about that. No person can take credit for that. God said, I'm going to do this in such a way so that you will see this is my victory. This is my doing. First fruits, trumpets. You see how they all fit together? It's a beautiful picture. Now, do you, do you know what the, the sound of a ram's horn is like? Have you ever heard a shofar before? Uh, Roger Gales, uh, who's been playing in our orchestra, has a shofar. And I've asked Roger if he would come and just play it for you so that you could hear what this kind of sound is like. Kind of what you expected to hear, wasn't it? You've heard it in the movies and that type of thing. Okay, here's what would happen, though, in this this very, well, unique Feast of Trumpets. There was one blast like that, which was the signal, prepare, get ready. And then that was followed by three shorter blasts, which sounded almost like wailing or weeping. It was a sign of repentance. And then there were nine staccato blasts that was like an alarm clock. Wake up, get ready. And then there was one long blast at the end, and I'll tell you what that means in just a minute. Hear how it went.
Thank you, Roger. <clears throat> Moses would be proud. Good job. Okay, so you got, do, do, do you know that last long call? Do, do you know what that was for? That was to announce the king is coming. Here comes the king. I hear these blasts. I hear that trumpet. I know that significance. And suddenly my mind is drawn to the words of Paul to the church at Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is what we read. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep, those who have died, or grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have died or fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now listen. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ. Dead what? Dead bodies. It can't be the spirit. The spirit isn't dead. The dead bodies will be raised first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The Feast of first fruits was the last of the three spring festivals. The Feast of Trumpets was the first of the three fall festivals. The two were separated by about four months, and there is one feast in the very center, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, which is when the church came into existence. First fruits, resurrection, trumpets, the return, and here's the church in the very center. It's exactly where we're living out our lives. We're on this side of the resurrection, but we're on the opposite side of the trumpet blast of his return. And remember, folks, there were three stages to the harvest in the Hebrew thought. There was the first fruits, that first sheaf represented by Jesus. Then there was the general harvest. And then there was the gleanings, the last part where you picked up the stuff that was dropped. Jesus as he returns, the first fruits, the raising of the dead, the general harvest. And then if any of us are left, we will be changed in the blink of an eye. We're the gleanings, the leftovers. What a grand picture. And you say, well, okay, what does this have to do with my life? Can, what difference does this make in my life? Well, for starters, what we celebrate today is rooted in God's grace. We may feel far removed from these feasts of the Old Testament and by timeline, we are, but we are never and never have been far removed from God's heart of grace. God was thinking about us long before we existed. Elsie and I heard Bob Goff speak at a convention last year, and his unique approach to everyday living really challenged the way I look at life. He, he just thinks of things in, in ways that I just never thought of them before. As a matter of fact, I read about where Bob Goff gave his daughter a gift before she was born. He wrote a letter telling her that he forgave her for crashing the car. He put the letter in a jar, buried it in the yard. 17 years later, she wrecked the car. He gave her a shovel and coordinates <clears throat> and told her to go dig up the jar. She did she read his letter, 
And she realized that her dad had forgiven her even before she was born. Do you realize that's what our Heavenly Father has done for us? He made forgiveness possible before we were even born. Our celebration today is rooted in His grace. And because of God's grace, I need to take a closer look at who I am, what I am, how I live day by day. Am I a different person because of the resurrection? (laughs) Comedian Dimitri Martin said, I used to play sports. Then I realized you can buy trophies. Now I'm good at everything. (laughs) Well, the truth is we're not good at everything, and sometimes we're good for nothing. But I'm ever so grateful, ever so grateful that my everlasting life is not determined by my goodness or, for that matter, by my weakness. It is a gift of his grace that demands I do my best for him every day. So can I ask you, how will tomorrow be different for you because of the resurrection? Because we've shared this today, how will your life for him be better or different? What will you do to mend a relationship, hug away a tear, lend a helping hand, encourage a coworker, lift up your family? Will being here today make any difference in the way you live the day after today and here on out? Because if we aren't different because of the resurrection, then I'm not sure we really believe in the resurrection. And I'm pretty sure we've never really made Jesus Lord of our lives. And you see, our celebration today is also rooted in hope. But, but remember, life doesn't always feel that way. We're, we're in that middle stage, all right? We're between first fruits and trumpets. We're between the resurrection and the return. And sometimes living here in this in-between time seems pretty disheartening. Sometimes life just feels flat. We share in our family an old beater pickup truck. But I've got one rear tire on that truck that just keeps losing air. I'm not sure where the air goes. I just know that it's losing air. It's got no punctures in it. I've messed with the valve stem. I've corrected and worked on the valve stem. I check for leaks around the bead and the seal. I just can't find any. But I'm telling you, it's hard to drive a truck with a tire that goes flat and loses air. Sort of reminds me of life in this world. Life can sometimes be really deflating. A friend betrays you and The air just goes out of your life. Your marriage falls apart, and the air just leaks out of your heart. The medical tests aren't good. Your job gets reassigned. You're suddenly out of work. And before you know it, you're out of air, and you're running hopelessly flat. But a risen Savior changes all of that. When we realize that the best is still yet to come, that the trumpet hasn't sounded yet, but it still will... We have his promise that we will be in him alive forever in this glorious place of peace and joy and excitement and energy. And you see, when you know that that's still what is to come, you just keep on rolling even when the air seems to go out of your life. Because of the resurrection, everything we face here is just temporary. All the pain, all the sorrow, all the heartbreak, all the setbacks, it's just temporary. With him, everything is hopeful and eternal. England's famous prime minister, Winston Churchill, planned his own funeral. That should be no surprise to anybody. But according to his instructions in the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral, he had two buglers 
The, the crowd could not see it. So at the end of his service, the one played taps, as you would expect. It's that military mournful sound that says, day is done. It also signals the death of a, of a comrade. But as the mournful note of that taps was still echoing off the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral, the other bugler picked up the note and played reveille. It's time to get up. What a beautiful picture. We're between the resurrection, but the trumpet is yet to be sounded. And when it sounds, what will that mean for you? When the king is announced at his coming, will you be ready?